0: Welcome, everybody, to Crystal and Kyle After Dark.
1: <laughs> Is that our new name? That's Yes,
0: we have to change the name of the podcast now. <laughs> Just kidding. You wish. Anyway, welcome to Crystal, Kyle, and friends. Uh, got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We have a great interview coming up with a writer on, of a book on Occupy Wall Street, and so we're going to get into the upsides of it, the downsides of it, and everything in between, what the legacy of it, you know, where it. Pushed us in terms of history, the direction it took us, what grew out of it, so on and so forth. So that should be interesting.
1: Yes, indeed, um, the book is is fascinating. I, I for me, it was very thought provoking to think about the way that movement shaped the past decade, the sort of promises of that movement, and how and why they fell short. The framing of it, the 99 versus the one, which I think is a lot better than the framing that the left has today. So I'm excited to talk to him about all those things.
0: Yeah, very true. Before we get into that, though, there's two things that caught my eye. Uh, first, Chris, I'll let you take it over. There's something that happened in San Francisco, which is a pretty big story, and I think we should weigh in on
1: Yeah, that. this is getting a lot of attention. So three school board members in San Francisco, on the San Francisco uh, school board, were just recall- recalled. The vote was pretty overwhelming. Over 70
0: percent, right? Yeah, Yeah. in
1: favor of these three members being removed from the board. Um, I'll read from you the local coverage. They say the recall, and this is their analysis of what the issues were. The recall divided the city for the past year. With a grassroots effort of frustrated parents and community members pushing for the trustees' removal over the slow reopening of schools during the pandemic, and the boards focus on controversial issues like renaming 44 school sites and ending the merit-based admission system at Lowell High School. So a similar thing with that um, high school, this was like, you know, one of their top high schools that you used to have to test to get into. They switched it to a lottery system. Just like there's that's been controversial in New York, especially among the Asian-American community. There was a similar backlash in San Francisco over that specific issue. Basically, the sense was that people felt like, you know, oh, you're just changing this because there are too many Asians getting into this high school. So that created a backlash. But really, the big, the core of this issue was that they kept the schools closed for a long time. And while the schools were closed, instead of focusing on, hey, how do we get the schools reopened and make sure like kids can be in classes safely? They were focused on renaming, renaming 44 schools. different schools, one of which was named after Abraham Lincoln. You guys probably saw that in the news at some And point
0: there's one after was, George Washington, too. Yeah, was apparently,
1: Sagar's telling me one of them was named after Diane Feinstein. That's well, right. Which is hilarious.
0: Yeah. That they changed <laughs> yeah, that one? Like, no, I'm just actually,
1: I no longer support the recall. Yeah. Um, but just to give you a sense, I mean, this really was, there was uh, very strong support. For the recall effort within the Chinese, Asian community, Asian yeah. commun- mm-hmm. the Chinese American community specifically, but also um, mainstream support in the city. London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, supported the recall effort specifically for the reason that you know their priorities were misplaced during the, this pandemic. She wanted them focus more on getting the schools reopened instead of what she considered to be superfluous issues. The people who were opposed to the recall of these three individuals um they use some sort of typical arguments first of all they tried to say oh this is outside funded it's outside money coming in i'm sure there was some outside money but there was very clearly that's that, always
0: stupid it's like we live in america if, if americans are against what you're doing yeah i like, mean there, what there was
1: very clear I, I think it's very dismissive as of long as the it's not big concern.
0: money as long as it's not big money like from corporate corporations or billionaires funding then i have a problem with it but if it's regular people in idaho who are like i'm concerned about that then yeah. go ahead i don't well, care look
1: there may have been some big dollar donations i'm not sure but i think to dismiss this as some sort of just like astroturfed movement. It's hollow. It's hollow. Clearly wasn't the case. And then what the board of supervisors, president, who was against the recall, who wanted these members to stay on the board, this was the argument that they made. They said Trump's election and bold prejudice brought a lot of that out, even in our democratic and liberal city. There are a lot of people who do not want people of color making decisions in leadership, even though the voters said that is what they want. So basically blaming Trump and racism. Yeah, that's and a dodge. One, that's one a other dodge. Thi- it's a total dodge. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's relevant to that context. There are sem- seven members of the board. Six of them are people of color. And so it wasn't like I it was say. just people of color on the board. I will
0: say, though, hear. I did read one article. I think it was in the Washington Post that said that <laughs> the people who were organizing the recall election did go on Glenn Beck show. <laughs> so it is it is fair to say there was some cozying up to right wing media, um, if you will. Sure. But that's still the core of the but argument is still incredibly silly. You can't just swat it all aside and, and you know. Well, say, and let me
1: also just say as a parent. <laughs> well, I was gonna ask you. I was
0: gonna go through. Can we so let's do that now? Yeah. Let, let's go through the things and, and I'll see what you think. I'll tell you what I I think the biggest issue that I, I'm interested to dive into is the renaming of the school. So but put that aside for a second, let's go thing for thing. The first one is uh, the reopening of school. So You're in that district, you see what's going on, what's your position on it? Go ahead.
1: I I think that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a very, you know, it's very understandable to shut the schools because we just didn't know um, a lot of information about how the virus would spread, who would be most vulnerable, how to protect, most effectively protect people. And so, you know, I pulled my kids out even a little bit before our school districts closed because we just didn't know. At this point, and fairly quickly, we saw that virtual learning is a disaster, that the costs that are imposed on kids, especially poor kids, disproportionately kids of color, by having schools shuttered is not worth the benefit. And in fact, there has been very little evidence that closing schools even stopped the spread of the virus. So yes, I know that this is a very touchy subject, but at this point, the data is pretty clear that the the learning loss and the psychological cost of having schools shuttered for extended periods of time was very damaging to kids. So I'm definitely on the side of they should have. And they, they kept their schools closed a long time. They should have reopened sooner.
0: So in one in way, I'm actually more conservative than you on this question because i remember early on in the pandemic when everything was sort of slowly shutting down and it was a piecemeal shutdown it wasn't like a national federal mm-hmm. level shutdown it was like you know locality city state whatever things yeah. were shutting down i remember i actually was against it although i was tepid in opposing it but i because i i was looking at japan as the model at the time and japan basically had universal masking and they had very low rates of COVID. Well, so right. everything was open but everybody was masked so in a in a weird way I, Kyle Kalinske, was the perfect mix of red state freedom and blue state safety. And I said, just wear your mask and everything will stay open and everything will be glorious. So in a way, I was never really in favor of the, or I don't maybe I said something at some point that was like tepidly in favor of the shutdowns, but I mm. flipped on that very quickly because I saw Japan and I was like, everything's open. I like that, but everybody's masked up. So that was my so I'm with you on that. Mm. I will say though to the to the argument about the data i think people do talk about this too conclusively because yeah you could say the kids are psychologically worse off because they didn't go to school but that is uh, that is fundamentally a different thing from physically you know they're what they're phys- you are going to be physically better off if you don't get the virus even though the virus doesn't affect kids that bad and like the whole thing about because there was a study that came out recently shutdowns lockdowns only like lowered the spread rate by like 0.2 percent or whatever and i look at that and i go we never really did a shutdown. We never really had a COVID zero policy. And obviously, everybody can imagine a scenario where there's a virus that's spreading like, like wildfire that has 100% death rate. And then everybody, of course, would be like, we got to shut everything down. We have no choice. It's 100% death rate. If you get it, you die. Mm-hmm. So I just find that the, the dialogue around that is a little bit weaselly to me. And this mm-hmm. is coming from somebody, again, I'm not in favor of the shutdowns. I was in favor of universal masking and keeping everything open. But we have to be honest enough to say that, like, there are, of course, scenarios where a virus could be bad enough where it's got, like, oh, 100% death rate sure. where you have to shut down. And all sure. these ideas of it only cuts at 0.2%. It's like, well, no, if you actually do a shutdown, if you actually have a COVID zero policy, no, you can actually curtail the spread of the virus without a doubt.
1: But- there is no evidence that shutting schools helped to stop the spread of the virus, either to kids or to their families we or to teachers. So there there isn't actually evidence that shutting schools benefited kids at all. And it didn't only affect their mental health. Kids, the um, l- level of obesity among children shot up significantly. I mean, but that's is- a, that's a health cost. You had increased rates of depression and anxiety. I mean, those are real health costs. And of course, you had massive learning loss. That's going well, to potentially what I'm saying. I'm saying set them back psychologically their
0: worse off versus physically worse off. But also, does this data even include? other countries that did more complete shutdowns?
1: So other countries, by and large, prioritized keeping schools open. And a lot of other countries, European countries, that had more aggressive shutdowns in general um, and maybe more stringent masking requirements in general also... Uh, prohibited masking among children under 12. So we've been an outlier uh, among our sort of peer developed nations in terms of school shutdowns and in terms of masking kids. And it obviously, I mean, our obviously our death statistics have been horrendous. So it has not done much good for us to have shut down schools. And at this point, to me, at this point, the data is actually very clear about. The benefits of school closures, which, again, at the beginning, I think totally justifiable and understandable and we didn't know. But at this point, knowing all that we do, I think it is very clear that the benefits of closing schools were not um sufficient to offset the cost
0: in the case of this particular virus like i said i'm sort of with you because i would sure. have never shut him down in the first place yeah, well, i'm only talking about up. this virus i'm, I'm not know, saying but that, but always I'm just, ever i'm just, you I'm just you know. the reason why i'm so skittish is because i've seen so many absolute idiots so conclusively say lockdowns never work lockdowns never work and it's like if a virus comes along that's way more deadly and spreads way faster than COVID, right. these idiots will be saying that. And it's like that is literally our only but place I'm to touch it down.
1: But I'm not even talking about lockdowns in general. I'm just talking about schools and kids. But a lockdown we know... is a school
0: shutdown. It's the, I'm just using the same language okay, to talk about the same thing. I'm specifically
1: talking about schools because also, I mean, the other factor here is we know that COVID is less of a risk to children and has been much, much, much less deadly to them. And so but that's also second important. a second-order
0: issue of they spread it to the adults. That's, that is is all part of right. the and consideration of other
1: piece. I'm actually curious your thought on this one because the other piece is, at this point, you know, before you get the vaccines, I think that's a different landscape. Once you have the vaccines and they're broadly available, totally to different
0: people, story. Then it's yeah. a different story. Oh,
1: absolutely. Because you're talking about hurting kids to protect adults who couldn't do the basic thing of go get themselves vaccinated to protect themselves, and that I just I'm not on board with.
0: Yeah. At all. Well, like I said, in some ways, I was to the right of you on the question to begin with because. And in some countries, this would be considered to the left of you, not the right of you, because different countries with different political yeah, factions— Yeah, this doesn't
1: line up easily Some left-wing easily parties ide- were
0: very, like, letter rip because they believe in freedom and liberty and all that stuff. And some left-wing parties in some countries, like in the U.S., were more along the lines of, no, we need to protect safety, security, all that stuff. So anyway, the, the political lines are muddled. But yeah, I would say—like I said— I totally understand everybody being upset over the slow reopening of schools. I think I would have been upset about it as well. Um, and so on that front, I think they deserve the criticism that yeah. they got, even though I think the topic more generally deserves a lot more nuance and complexity than most people are willing to give it credit for. I see a lot of morons who are not respecting the the, the complexity and the nuance of it and barking their here's opinion the, like they know the what they're piece, talking about and they don't know what they're talking about. Here's
1: the piece about. that I think – I think that the health and well-being – children data piece, to me, that piece is pretty clear based on the evidence. The part I think is more complicated is, especially with Omicron, how infectious it was and how um, many breakthrough cases that there were. I mean, there there were school systems that genuinely had an issue of just like, our entire staff is sick. Like We don't have the personnel to keep schools open right now. Now, I still think that keeping the doors of schools open should be a priority and that, you know, extreme efforts should have been made to keep the doors open. I think those sort of practical considerations ended up being challenging during Omicron. Anyway, that's
0: anyway, Okay. It. So yeah. more or less agreement with nuances on that point. Mm-hmm. But so now I understand the frustration over the renaming of the 44 yeah. schools, particularly during a crisis where it's like, you should be focusing on this. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. This is like, your priorities are all out of whack. I will say though, in the broader conversation about renaming the schools, Um, I do find the people who are just resistant to it in principle to be annoying as hell. Yeah. The people who are like, I'm surprised you agree with me on this, because even like the we're renaming George Washington school, because I think in some ways people are actually super conservative, but they don't think it's conservatism. And this is one of those ways, like the whole deifying the founding fathers and whatnot. It's like, Mm -hmm. look, that's part of the national mythology. And when you look at people in Iran who do that about the, Ayatollahs and whatnot with the 1979 revolution, it's like, you can you can realize how stupid it is when you see other countries do it, but then when you look at our founding fathers, many of them had slaves, many of them wore powdered wigs and shat in outhouses, <laughs> and everybody has to pretend like they're the oh, mega geniuses, oh my god they're so right about everything, oh! And it's like, You're actually being kind of ridiculous. So even though given the context of how they change the names, it's like, I get it. Focus on the more important things. So I understand being pissed off about it in this context. But more broadly speaking, I think everybody needs to, to come to the realization that if you're going to deify things, if you're going to put their names on buildings or put up statues or whatever, I really want it to be people who are unassailable. Like, I really want Martin Luther King statues instead of, you know, whatever, some slave-owning founding father. I really want uh, the Jonas Salk, who came up with the polio vaccine and fucking gave it away for free and could have made millions of dollars on it. he was like, no, would you patent the sun? I'm not going to. So, and and almost nobody agrees with me on this point almost everybody's like, you know, tradition, keep it up. And it's like, oh, I get how that's easier because it's the lazy thing to do. And it's just like, you just don't have to change anything. So nobody gets pissed off. You just leave it as is. But I just don't think that um, the idea is as crazy as people pretend it is. Mm. Like, oh, it's only stems from wokeness. It's like, it's got nothing to do with wokeness. It's about if you're building a society, uh, do you want to have like false idols that are obviously stupid? Or do you want to maybe try to do a little better? And- maybe have idols that are more above the fray and genuinely good people. And somebody could even say my MLK example, say, like, well, he cheated on his wife, so maybe his statue couldn't go up. Okay, fair enough. Maybe we don't have statues and shit. But you see my <laughs> you see my broader point, though? It's yeah. like, don't, well, I don't know I why guess, people get triggered about, like, let's change the name of a Confederate school or let's... And to be fair, Abraham yeah. Lincoln and George Washington are not Confederate. But just yeah. the idea in general of changing the names, I have no problem with it.
1: Okay, so here's the context that in which it bothers me. I mean, the the sort of... What you point out of they're focused on, like, let's rename the Abraham Lincoln school and the Diane Feinstein school while they should right. be focused on. Because I feel like that's why I have a knee jerk reaction against some of these efforts, because right. I think routinely they're used as like. Well, we're not going to do anything that's, like, really going to change life for— Let's do the fake thing. Let's do the fake thing. Let's do the theatrical. It's easy to change the name. Let's have a whole thing about it and vote on it, and it's a whole public controversy, and everybody gets sucked into this stupid culture war bullshit that isn't going to put food on the table or help a single person make rent. And so that's why the second I see a lot of focus going to one of these efforts, that's why I have a knee-jerk reaction against it because— that's what we see routinely happening in the Democratic Party. And so I'm not ideologically opposed to renaming schools, buildings, certainly taking down monuments. I mean, some of them are very obvious. That they fucking Confederate monuments. People get triggered when they
0: pull Confederate monuments. It's like, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I I have no ideological objection to any of those things. And I don't really care if you rename Abraham Lincoln Middle School or whatever to someone, rename it after a labor leader or something else. I don't care. But what I do have a knee jerk reaction against is the fact that oftentimes these are used to cover for the fact that you're not doing anything else. And we actually. Total agreement
0: on that. I agree with you on that. Yeah.
1: And we actually. Sagar and I had an interview with uh, Adolf Reed about his book, Mm -hmm. Uh, The South. We talked to him a little bit about it when we interviewed him, but the book wasn't out yet. And it's all about him growing up under Jim Crow. And it's an attempt. um, It's it's not really a memoir. He uses his own personal experiences to illustrate what was happening in the country uh, on a broader basis, both in his childhood and then as things changed growing up. And he talks about, he grew up in Louisiana, he grew up in New Orleans. He talks about when those Confederate monuments were taken down. You remember Mitchell Andrew? Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal. And he gave a very stirring and moving speech. And it wasn't that it didn't mean something to him, because it did. It really did mean something to him. And to have these monuments, and you know the context in which they were put up, you know, to, during the Jim Crow to try to put black people back in their place, um, it meant something to him. But he also had this recognition of, yeah, but. You know, Landry and all these people, they're still serving the same corporate masters and they're not willing to actually do anything to, to fundamentally change things. So that's kind of the framework that I generally view these things in. And it's hard on these culture war issues issues to have that fuller context because when you have the knee-jerk reaction against it, it just feels like you're like, oh, well, you're just opposed to like, you know, getting rid of racism or whatever. But that's the piece of it that really bothers me. I, I,
0: I agree with everything you said there. Uh, given the context of how they wanted to change it when you had much bigger crises going on, totally makes sense to want to recall them. And I'm not surprised the vote was over 70%. I probably yeah. would have voted for the recall as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. I guess my actual position on the renaming of schools and the pulling down of Confederate monuments and things of that nature is like, I genuinely don't care either way. So if they stay up, I'm not going to be like, you have to take it down. But if somebody changes it, I'm also going to be like, okay. I'm not going to be like, you have to not change it because history and tradition and Right. I just, everybody who gets passionate about it annoys me for some reason. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? I do. And I think particularly because of the point you made, which is like, really, it's all just window dressing. Fundamentally,
1: Well, and the reaction it it. against it is window dressing. That, right. They that's that's the their thing sits. I'm
0: trying to say. That's the exact yeah. thing I'm trying to say. Yeah. So let's get to the, um, the final point of this. And actually, I read they got rid of gifted and talented programs, too, and people were pissed about that.
1: Oh, I'm not sure about that. I, I, did, I saw I that, that in the Washington that. That Post be, article. Yeah, that could be. Now,
0: on that front... I think you should keep the program, but I will say I'm going to be politically correct, Kyle, for a second here, because I don't like the name gifted and talented. Where Mm -hmm. I was from in New York, we called it AP classes. AP was an acronym for advanced placement.
1: But that's a different thing. So like, well, so growing up in King George County, where my kids also go to public schools, um, we had AP classes, which were like the ones that you take the AP uh, test at the end of and you get college credit if you get a four or five. Okay. As at least how it worked when I was going high school a million years ago. But they're also separately, especially for elementary school kids, is a tag talented and gifted program. So I think they're yeah. two different things. So I
0: think the reason I get triggered about that is because if you're calling like you're in the gifted and talented class, yeah. you're saying to the other kids, you're not gifted or talented. Yeah. And I think that could crush their, uh, you know, their trust in themselves. And I also think it sort of curses the kids who are in the class because they feel like if I'm gifted and talented, I don't even have to work harder because I'm already gifted and talented. So I could just coast on my gifted and talentedness.
1: Yeah, it also, um, I mean, the the concerns that have been raised, I don't have a great, like, fully thought out uh, view on these programs because I think it is kind of complicated. Oftentimes, the kids who get selected into it, it's more a representation of their class status than their actual, like, gifted So that gets to the status. final point yeah. that
0: I wanted to make because the other thing was they eliminated the merit admission system. Mm-hmm. And the result of that was it's overwhelmingly Asian. But the
1: merit system had it being The merit system Asian. made yeah. it
0: so that it was way more Asian students that were yeah. coming in. So my question to you is, you look at that and you say, look, it is what it is. I support the merit system, and that's that. Or do you have some other factor that you would add into the mix to change the formula by which they determine who goes to the school?
1: I think it's hard to do that without ending up just like overt anti-Asian discrimination. So Because this is what the Ivy Leagues tried to do. And did you read the reports on how they were trying to filter out Asian applicants? I mean, they would use things like personal these very squishy like personality metrics of, oh, they're just not a good leader. And it sound, it was very played into a lot of anti Asian tropes and stereotypes to try to change their
0: ratios but, so to be what they wanted. Here's a counter argument though. The counter argument though is that we're presupposing that as of right now, it actually is based on merit. Like we're, we're just granting into the conversation that the system they call merit-based is merit-based, mm-hmm. when the fact of the matter is we all know, especially when it comes to colleges— they have all these legacy programs and whatnot that are just affirmative action for spoiled rich kids. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, your dad yes. went to the school, so now you're going to get into this school. Yes. And so in a million and, most and one ways. of those ways, kids are white,
1: by the way. Yes, yes.
0: In a million and one ways, the merit system actually isn't based on merit. So when people try to come up with new formulas to make it more fair, they're actually trying to make it in a weird way more merit-based. So when I look, I always – I have – I'm not pro-affirmative action, but I am pro-affirmative action based on class. And if you do it based on class, you're going to get a rainbow coalition. You're going to get a multiracial group of everybody. Because, look, if you go to a school that's chronically underfunded, you know, uh, you don't have as much of a shot at getting into an amazing university. And you may have done a phenomenal job, but given the limits of the school you went to, like, you may be asked out. Unless they have some sort of a program that says, we're going to factor in the fact that you didn't have as many resources growing up, so maybe you deserve to go to the school.
1: Well, I have a hard time getting super spun up on this debate because I think the whole structure and the way we think about the meritocracy is so fucked to start with. I agree. That it's such a, like, you know, it's so high stakes to get, designated as the gifted kid and have these certain specific skills, which are valued by the market and to get into the special high school and to get into the special college. I mean, this is the conversation we had with uh, Freddie DeBoer about how, no, we need to acknowledge that like, Not everybody starts at the same level in terms of what they're good at and what they're not good at. Not everybody has the same ability to achieve in these certain like super like valued by the market skills. And so what we need to do is create a different economy and different set of structures and supports so that if you aren't the gifted and talented kid going to Lowell High School is the name of um, this high school in San Francisco, which is funny because my son's name Lowell, Then your life is still going to be fine. Like you're still going to be okay. And then these debates become a lot less like tense and fraught where it's like, oh, my God, you know, there's massive parent backlash that their kid's not going to be able to get into the special school anymore. Well, now you're going to be okay either way. Well,
0: that's why you need to do not just free college, but also free trade school. Mm -hmm. So you give everybody an avenue no matter what, like you're going to have an avenue. You're going to have a path the yeah. way it works. Now, people get all the way up through high school and they're just sort of dumped out in the real world. And it's like, you're kind of on your own. I want that to go continue up through college and or, or through trade school. And then you can get a head start in life in a way. But yeah, I like, I generally like the idea of merit-based. The thing is, we need to stop pretending that figuring out what merit is is as simple as it sounds because it's not
1: well. And yeah, class
0: affirmative action. I don't think is a bad idea. I think that's actually a wonderful idea. I
1: agree with, I'm I'm fine with class affirmative action. I think the, I think it makes sense to have kids who are, you know, particularly just happen to have an aptitude for communication or for math or for science or whatever, to be in an environment where that can be, nurtured and where they're around other kids who have similar gifts in those areas. What I object to is then just saying like the rest of y'all don't matter. And good luck in out there in the world because if you don't make it into this group and you didn't happen to win the genetic lottery to have these particular gifts, then you're basically going to be screwed.
0: Gotcha. So, um recall you ultimately would have voted for it. I would have voted for it. Let's yeah. hope that whoever replaces them is is better, is better but yeah. who knows. All right, let's, uh, let me jump to the final thing real quick before we jump to the interview. So there's a new uh, Meru or Maru public opinion poll mm-hmm. coming out of Canada. This is on, of course, the uh, trucker protest and blockade, even though most of them aren't truckers, called the trucker protest and blockade. Um, numbers are surprising. 66% support Trudeau invoking the Emergencies Act. That's a huge majority. 82% say three-week Ottawa protest has gone on too long. Mm-hmm. 67% say clear them out. say Canada's handling of it is an international embarrassment. 54% (laughs) say blame politicians. 56% say Premier's caved by lifting restrictions in the certain provinces where they lifted certain vaccine Uh passport restrictions or whatever they did. Um, What do you make of this?
1: I'm actually not surprised. So I would not be on the same side of a lot of those poll numbers because I think trudeau's actions are not just outrageous but actually really scary i mean the things that they're doing with regards to the bank accounts
0: freezing bank accounts yeah
1: this is crazy no due
0: process either by the way not not
1: only no due process the banks are exempt from liability if they screw up and like freeze anybody's bank account and it's not just freeze their bank account this is completely pushing them out of the banking system you can't get a mortgage. You can't access your money. Your credit cards are canceled. I mean, even things like if you've got child support or alimony payments that are supposed to go out, those are done. So not only is there no there, there's no recourse, the banks are exempt from liability, and the government is pushing them to take these actions against people who are either providing material support or are just present at the protest. Like, that is crazy. That is totally crazy. So, why do you think so the
0: support is so high?
1: I am so I am definitely not on the same side as Canadian public opinion, but I'm not surprised only because um, Canadians have been far more supportive of um, pandemic restrictions from the beginning than we have, and you know, really, uh, pretty much all together went along with much more aggressive, um, you know, vaccine passports and and lockdowns and those sorts of measures that were taken in most places across Canada, all the way through up till Omicron. And that's when you finally have this distinct minority group that says, okay, this is, you've gone too far, now we're going to do something. Um, but I knew that Canadians were broadly supportive of these pandemic measures. I knew that there was broad public sentiment against the protesters. So I wasn't ultimately that surprised that the numbers were like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think they trust their government more. Um, they have universal health care. They have economic mobility that far surpasses that in the United States. Yeah, they so I have think they reason gener- to
1: maybe trust their government more than we do. They generally <laughs> feel
0: like their government's looking out for them more because it is. Um, I know that the protests are, it's about $500 million a day in commerce that's axed as a result of these protests. Um, so, on the one hand, I get it. If you're affected by the blockade of the trucks and, you know, you want to go somewhere but you can't or whatever, I could see those people being upset i am a little surprised it's this high though Mm. for this reason and we're not any better in the u.s because we supported the patriot act in the wake of uh you know 9-11 and the war on terror i think the numbers for the patriot act were very high george w W bush's approval rating was like 90 percent after that so we're not any better here but i think people generally are not good at Understanding or conceptualizing the second-order consequences, like the other things that may happen as a result of this, and they're not good at putting the shoe on the other foot. And so here's an instance where the very first thing that should have popped your mind, if you're at all, if you're minimally objective about this, is, hmm, if this sets a precedent, how else can it be used? Mm-hmm. And the answer immediately is like, you try to do some sort of general strike, it's a wrap. They're gonna call. It, they're literally. They're literally literally calling these people terrorists.
1: Yeah. and Now agree in the or disagree.
0: Agree or disagree with what they're protesting for. They want to end the mandates. That's not terrorism. And even if you say a tiny percentage of them are doing violence, okay, but the overwhelming majority of them are peaceful. This is exactly what we say when it's a Black Lives Matter protest or any other protest. The overwhelming majority of them are peaceful. Same thing going on here. So they're calling them terrorists, and they're freezing their bank accounts, and there's no due process. Obviously, if there's some sort of general strike attempt, if there's some sort of union effort to protest for a new law or or higher wages or whatever, like they're immediately going to roll this out for these people, too and careful what you wish for it. Guys, the whole idea of having a right is that it's 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 protected. It's not open to the whims of the majority. So even if 99% of the public wants to take away your right to X, X doesn't go away. That's the whole point of a right. And here we're talking about the right to protest, the right to freedom of speech, the right to uh, peaceably assemble, right? Yeah. And so you have to understand that far outweighs whatever your personal opinions are on this trucker protest. And I'll say, I'll be the one to go out there and say it. Like, look, the Teamsters Union, they they represent the most truckers in Canada. And they've come out and said, we're not with this protest. Ninety percent of the truckers are vaccinated. And there were great interviews with a bunch of truckers who were like, yeah. you want you want you want a job? Just get vaccinated. Like that's it. Just get vaccinated. And me personally, I'm you know, I'm not totally with them on the whole anti-mandate thing. I think you should do mandate. Or test or excuse me, vaccinate or test. So I have that like middle ground policy. So I'm not even with them on a lot of the stuff. But the main takeaway has to be they they've gone way too far. And to have these numbers that are on the side of the government is kind of astounding, if you ask. Yeah, me.
1: well, and then there's a whole issue, too, of because on the one hand, it's like, well, Canadians, I guess, can do what they want with their country. And I'm sort of reluctant to go too far in criticizing their actions even as disturbing as i find them don't be but then you also have the specter of um tech companies like gofundme and right that's a huge thing too trying to pull the the financial support and this became a whole narrative from the government that then was really pushed down by the media that oh the source of this financing is somehow shady we don't know how but it's somehow shady and so gofundme pulls the support they pass you know they say okay we're gonna freeze the bank accounts. The individual contributors are doxed. Um, did you see this? I so saw it. Who was it?
0: Who wrote the articles on it? It was some big outlet in the U.S. So
1: Washington Post, <sighs> CBC, there have been multiple outlets using this doxed data. And listen, I think data that is relevant and newsworthy, however it's exposed, I think it should be reported on. But how freaking relevant and newsworthy. No, Some yeah, dude who no. gave 40 bucks. You for, can go after the power powerful, and you have, um, not
0: powerless. Yeah,
1: and you had, uh, and Ilhan Omar actually had a great thing on this and kudos to her because I think it's at odds with where a lot of um, liberals in the Democratic base are. There's a woman who owns a bakery. She gave $250. Her and she was doxxed. Doxed her life, a whole article written about her. Her bakery had to shut down. She's being harassed. And that's the other piece that I really object to is like, they have definitely. I. I have no doubt there are a lot of like anti-vax people in the college. I. I there may be fringe people. Et it's cetera. a
0: right-leaning movement. But, sure, it doesn't matter.
1: But it doesn't matter. Right. And <laughs> their core demands here about pandemic policy aren't something that should be like beyond the pale of public debate. Yeah. They're not actually Look, asking for anything that crazy. The one other thing I want to say here, though, to your point about the the precedent that is set, it is very noteworthy how this all went down and when the sort of hammer came down on them because Trudeau wasn't doing a lot. They were kind of allowed to be in Ottawa and do their thing and the residents were annoyed, but they weren't taking aggressive actions to remove them or arrest them or anything. And I actually haven't seen a single report. I, tell me if I'm wrong, but I haven't seen any reports of actual violence from this movement, okay?
0: But- I think there are isolated incidents, but go ahead.
1: When, when they brought the hammer down was when they blocked key trade routes with the US and you had auto plants that were starting to have to close down because they couldn't get their supplies in. And so when they called them
0: called Trudeau. when they
1: started to mess with capitalism, that's when the hammer really came down. Biden calls Trudeau. Next thing you know, it's Emergencies Act. It's we're going to arrest you. We're going to basically destroy your life and freeze your bank accounts and send you out of the banking system. And so anybody on the left who doesn't see that and say, oh, this is not a precedent that we want to be set. You know, Look, you're, you got to think these things through.
0: 90 percent of the truckers are vaccinated. What if they were just like, OK, you win. We're dropping the mandates. What would happen? 90 percent of them are already vaccinated. 90 percent. Or what if you just said, again, this is the thing I think is the compromise, and it happens to be the policy I support up front anyway. Okay, you don't have to get vaccinated, but you have to take a quick rapid test. Would that clear people out? It might. So it might the, clear them out, the right? The
1: policy right now in terms of the cross-border traffic is they technically do have a vaccine or test, but the problem is you have to test and you have to quarantine for two weeks. And if you're a long-haul trucker, obviously that's Wait, not so realistic.
0: why do you have to quarantine for two weeks, though?
1: That's policy
0: well, okay well change that you <laughs> say vaccinate <her laughs> test and that's that and if you have it then you quarantine for however long you're mm-hmm. supposed to quarantine but i mean look again i'm just i'm jealous of how successful it's been to this point that's because good. i want the left to to do something similar and but do it for things that are more important and a better issue than this yeah but yeah i mean i am a little surprised at these numbers from canada even though i know they trust their government more um yeah just the precedent is terrible we can't set, allow a precedent like this because it just screws everybody of every political persuasion or affiliation anytime you want to petition the government and and do a protest over whatever reason they will drop the hammer on you call you public enemy number one call you a terrorist freeze your bank account not, allowed you to crowd, not allow you to crowd fund and this is happening and at find the exact the worst same time and
1: find the person in your movement too to represent say, the movement. you're all this and this you're is all happening this at the thing. same
0: time that the you know the, the US just accused zero hedge of being Rus- Russian disinformation it's like Crazy. it's an assault on all fronts. It's like, we're going to say you're disinformation, you're misinformation, you're beholden to a foreign government, you're secretly a spy, you're a terrorist, you're this, you're that. And it's all simply because you disagree with the direction that the country's going in. Mm-hmm. If you don't think that's a bad precedent, I don't know what to tell you.
1: Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, Well, I think that's a good segue to talk about, um, you know, left movements and what maybe we could learn from the truckers um, and one of what was one of the more hopeful left movements that ultimately didn't end up getting us where we wanted to go, which is Occupy and digging into the reasons for that, what was good about it, what didn't work from it. Um, Michael Levitin is a journalist. He's also author of the new book, Generation Occupy, Reawakening American Democracy. Let's get right to it. joining us now is author Michael Levitin. Welcome. Great to have you.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Um, So I thought your book was really interesting uh, because I've been thinking a lot about Occupy and the legacy of Occupy, the shortcomings of Occupy, what, if anything, it's meant for American politics. But I wonder if you could just start by talking about your sort of involvement and how you came to be a part of the Occupy movement.
2: Yeah. Uh, mine was quite uh, quite surprising. I was driving across the country. In fact, um, while things were brewing, remember we were in this in the heart of the Great Recession, and they were uh, there were debates about the debt ceiling. Republicans, Democrats, they could not. Uh, Republicans determined to defeat Obama at every turn. No mention of a jobs program. Um, America was spiraling into this sort of uh, place of no return, and there was a sense of hopelessness. And I remember clearly um because what was going on in europe had rung the bells uh, in spain and in greece the protests and the arab spring had just happened months previously and that summer i was driving across the country on my way actually to catch a flight out of new york to go back to europe where i had been living in berlin and occupy broke that that week as i came into new york city i arrived on the second saturday of the movement uh and when i went down to zuccotti park which is now famously Zuccotti Park, um, it was something that drew me in so in, instinctively, I think, because uh, I've, I had been an activist in my younger years. I'm always curious and engaged by social movements and looking for our generation's social movement, which seemed not to show up uh, in my earlier years. And it's as though immediately I saw that this was it. Finally, our generation had showed up. Occupy Wall Street was the outrage that had been brewing, and it was finally manifest. And I decided to stay and help start the newspaper of the movement with other journalist activists and and took things from there.
0: So I'm going to ask a little bit of a weird question here, but I remember at the time during Occupy Wall Street, there's this um, libertarian free market guy by the name of Peter Schiff. He w- he, had gone on CNBC and a bunch of other networks, and he was one of very few to predict the, uh, you know, that the the bubble was going to pop, and we were going to have a great recession, and housing prices were going to collapse and stuff. And so he built like a, a kind of a cult following off the fact that he was one of the only people that was predicting the downturn, at least within mainstream media. And you know, this guy, you know, took his clout and his influence. He went down to Occupy Wall Street, and I remember him. This video went viral of him questioning these kids at Occupy Wall Street, like, "Why are you here?" And it went viral because, in all seriousness, the kids really didn't have good answers. They were—they were very surface-level. He was able to run circles around them. I mean, don't get—don't get me wrong. This is not a guy I agree with in any way, shape, or form because he's a like Ayn Rand devotee. He's all about you know, like the von Mises school of economic thought and Austrian economics and that stuff. Not my cup of tea at all. But how would you respond if you were tasked with look? these videos might not look good, but the heart of what these kids are doing is correct. How would you respond to a criticism of like, these are just a bunch of idiot kids who don't know what's going on and they don't know where to point their anger?
2: Hmm. <clears throat> Which was precisely what the Libertarians and what Fox News and what so many of the mainstream sort of broadcasters who went down there in the early weeks uh, expressly tried to show about the movement to say, look at these kids, these hippie anarchists dirty jobless kids Mm -hmm. are just camping out and they don't have a clue well they kind of got it wrong which was why our media sort of our own media had to do the job The, the the corporate media even the new york times and npr were so slow and late to the game they didn't really want to cover this look people um people have had enough neoliberalism, I think everybody, whether it's easy to express for kids in their 20s, for young people, which was what Occupy Wall Street was fueled by young people, either in college or had just graduated from college. Many had not gone to college. Many were unemployed or, you know, it was this uh, incredible mix. That was the beauty of it. It was the movement of the 99%, right? Um, So if some of the young people interviewed at the squares gave this impression of sort of Uh, you know, hippie, uh, lack of focus, not no direction. Um, That might have been true in the way that they spoke to some interviewer trying to poke holes in, what precisely do you want? Because that was the whole novelty and genius of Occupy Wall Street was that everybody was on board with the same basic idea. We were tired of corporate control of Washington and tired that politicians and bankrolling elections and buying legislate the legislative process to shape outcomes in favor of the one percent tired of that manipulation of our lives and essentially degradation of our lives the 99 in the interests of the billionaire class um and concepts like that are hard to express in sound bites they don't you don't you don't talk about the the one the percent and the Failures of the capitalist system, the system as a whole, um, in nice little packageable, um, you know, quips that, that that are easy to put in a in a newspaper, a one liner. So I think that when they found people not knowing, oh, do they? How are they against student debt? Is it climate change? Is it healthcare? care? Is it? It was all of it, and that was part of Occupy's problem because it wanted to address the whole systemic dysfunction of of Wall Street's control and capture of our political process. Um, but uh, all of it at once, kind of, um, because it was the system that was the problem. And that was what made it so arresting and why America tuned in. Because for once, in our country, in decades, since really the 60s and even previous, you could put back to the FDR years, we don't criticize capitalism and the corruption, the basic inherent corruption on which our system is built. Um, which is why it doesn't serve the people's interests in general. So Occupy was shouting all of these things in its slogans, and yes, the right-wing media had a field day. But in the end, once the message was out, and several weeks got rolling, and, and the movement grew and exploded across the country and across the world with hundreds and hundreds of occupations, I think those people heard the message, and it wasn't hard to get on board. Yeah, I mean, it had majority support across the country. You know the ideas.
1: Which is incredible when you do consider um, the way that the media pretty much across the board responded. I mean, right-wing media, I mean, they were all in. I did some research this week looking back at how um, Occupy protesters were characterized. Rush Limbaugh called them pure, genuine parasites and actually claimed that the rhetoric about the 99% was anti-Semitic. Okay. (laughs) Um, Brett Baer said that uh, the Ayatollah of Iran and Venezuela were supporting the protesters. I mean, it's just classic stuff. Eric Erickson launched this whole campaign about how this is the lazy 47%. Oh, yeah, that's Mitt Romney's line, too. That's where Mitt Romney comes up with that. And we're the the hardworking taxpaying 53%. Liberal outlets, uh, and you tell me if this accords with your, your recollection as well, times NPR was raked across the coals from their own listeners for just not covering the protests at all. Then when they do start to cover, you get a lot of this sort of dismissive, like, you know, trying to make fun of the individual protesters. Aaron Burnett. Aaron
0: Burnett was famous was, for what she was like, really? Yeah. She <laughs> really? <laughs> was, she was
1: new at CNN. Yeah. And she did a whole totally contemptful piece. She was like, they don't even know how great the uh, bailouts were actually for ordinary mm-hmm. taxpayers. They don't get how great the bank bailouts really were. Glenn Greenwald raked her across the coals for that in epic form, by the way. So I think it's incredible to look back at that, to recognize that there was this totally sort of like uniform, contempt-filled, bipartisan view of the protesters, And yet I don't think that the left has yet come up with a a slogan or a framing that's superior to the 99% versus the 1%. Like that division was the correct divide. And whenever the left has sort of leaned into that type of a division, and it is a divisive rhetoric, but in a fruitful way, um, I think that's been profoundly effective.
2: Look at Bernie Sanders, right? Precisely. The whole new wave. Yeah, I think I think the left has been so used to this for so many decades um, of being ignored, being laughed at, protesters being treated as somehow fringe. Protest wasn't cool. You know, nobody goes that went out in the street and waved. Flag, you know, banners and shouted slogans and marched. That was so passe, right? In a sense, after the 60s, it kind of expired um, and sort of used itself up. We had anti-war protests, of course, and the gay movement, uh, and AIDS in the 80s in Washington and El Salvador, different people for Central America. But decades went by, and that's something in my book that I address, is the fact that Occupy reawoke, reawakened this kind of activism. It made it cool again to protest. Um, The idea that the media wouldn't cover it was not new. It wasn't like the movement was expecting it to, which is why what Occupy did in the place of that media that intentionally kind of put it in its place and tried to pretend it wasn't happening. These kids will just up and disappear. Give them a week or two, just like they're saying about the truckers in Ottawa, right? Yeah. Just give them a few weeks, they'll be gone. And I'd like to talk about that because there's obviously comparisons you might want to draw talking about the way the media has, and the right-wing media, your 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 Limbaugh, Hannity-oriented crowd is reacting toward Ottawa versus what they were to Occupy. Yes. That's a clear mm-hmm. distinction. But I wanted to say that what Occupy people did Uh, to fill that gap, to fill that void and create their media has been a model for what the entire decade since Occupy, what activists and and the entire social movement era that we're in, um, has now come to almost master. It created its own viral media that went around the mainstream. It knew the mainstream would not cover it. It wasn't capable of using the language and the uh, aggressive confrontation against the system and the structural systemic ills of our system. So Occupy by Twitter, by Facebook, remember these things were new. We had just gotten cell phones in our pockets like very recently prior to 2011, maybe 2009, 10, uh, people, viral video. We had never done that before Occupy Wall Street. We used the new technology that was literally in our hand and new forms of organizing with with, with uh, various the Tumblr blogs and various email chain lists and Google Docs had just come in so we could write, you know, manifestos, we could write together and people could share. All of this was new. We invented this kind of new form of viral, immediate um, mass participation uh, a publicity for ourselves and, and generating this groundswell of support. And look at what movements since Occupy have done with that. Black Lives Matter built on that and improved on it. And Standing Rock out in the middle of the North Dakota uh, plains protesting a pipeline was able to bring the whole country into that fight through its use of its own media. Um, And and of course, Me Too, the Women's March, the climate movement, Young Generation Z, Gen Z are masters of this, the March for Our Lives. Um, they generated their own media, and I think that Occupy showed in a way that movements before it hadn't, how you can do that in the absence of a mainstream that's ready to get on board, which frankly, it has shown over and over it sort of never will be.
0: So let me get to, you know, some of my criticisms of it, because the left, I mean, we get sort of used to well, we won this moral victory, and I'm like, what about the actual victory? I care more about the actual (laughs) victory. And so, like, part of me, look, I want to you know, pay homage to the movements that came before us and, you know, give them their due diligence. I don't want them to l- look at me or my criticisms or whatever is like, that's, you know, enemy rhetoric or you're conceding ground to the other side or whatever. That's not my intention here. But when I look at the downsides, not just of Occupy, but of actually all the movements you just mentioned, March for Our Lives, uh, you know, the, uh, Pussy hat march was well, it the women's march, march. right <laughs> Black Lives Matter uh, you know in the in this previous summer um, when I look at all of them I have two main criticisms one of them is and this is a general issue I see on left left versus right like you mentioned the Ottawa protest before that's being run by ex military and ex police and as a general rule when you have ex military and ex police they have an ethos. That's in them. And that ethos is discipline, leadership, order, hierarchy, eyes on the prize, execute it. Okay? That's what I see from the right. On the left, and maybe it's by our very nature, I don't know, but we almost believe in democracy and egalitarianism and uh, bottom up organic approaches to a fault. To the extent where somebody emerges as some sort of a leader or somebody tries to hey hey let's have like discipline and order here it's like well discipline and order are like fascist man (laughs) and so there's like you know there's like a a, there's that criticism and then the other criticism is and again you see big difference between the ottawa protests and and what happened with left movements is that the ottawa protests from the very beginning it seemed very clear like we're against the mandates why are you protesting well we want to end the mandates okay you talk to a lefty hey why are you here the systemic structures of the institutions of all these it like it's, it's always like eight layers deep of analysis. Like you ask a question and you're talking to like Noam Chomsky fused with Foucault and, and it just uh, ends up in like mumbo jumbo. So my criticism has always been where's the order? Where's the leadership? Where's the hierarchy? Uh, and then also for the love of God, there needs to be a core messaging thing where it's not just the slogan, which I admit sounds good and has moved us in the right direction. But it's like, what are you here for? I'm here for universal health care, right to a union, $15 minimum wage, break up the banks. That's what I'm here for. And I want to hear that from everybody who's asked about it. And this way, you have good optics and the media can't spin it. Oh, they're here because they want to bring back the Soviet Union, or they're here because they want free love and anarchy and people to defecate in the streets. It's like, no, we just told you what we're here for, $15 minimum wage, um, you know, Medicare for all, break up the banks, uh, right to a union, etc. cetera. So how do you respond to my criticism? Do you think there's merit or do you think I'm being too harsh?
2: Absolutely. I think you're you're saying something that is the unspoken, sort of um, it's a bit taboo to talk like that on the left. I think that uh, everybody knows. what you just said is I, I feel absolutely clear. I, I make I don't spend my time in the book um making this argument over and over, but I, I do weave that idea throughout the book, the failings of this model of kind of anti-hierarchical, consensus based you know not elevating leaders when really a movement requires them to progress and to advance goals and put policies on the table that real people in power can then you know wrestle with I, I I fully agree with what you say I feel like um we've now gone I don't know one or two generations now really since the 60s and the kind of chaotic tumult of the 60s and Abby Hoffman and you know essentially where disruption, overrides, uh, you know, and this kind of outburst, this feeling like we're protesting somehow um, is more important than actually getting things done and achieving aims and goals. Um, I really agree. I think the left is in this, I wouldn't call it paralysis because it's constantly, there's things evolving and moving, but I think that until it figures out how to harness its own power, because really the majority, as we see on the issues that you just mentioned, $15 15 dollar wage, healthcare for all, eradicating student debt or at least making college debt free, massive climate change proposals, union, these are majority, gun violence. I mean, you go down the list and although our congress fails to act, these are 60, 70, sometimes 80% support from the American public, right? Over and over taxing the rich, reigning in co- banking, the banks and corporate power. Majorities of American, we know that the Americans support these measures. We become more progressive, um, as a country, um, and yet the framing, as you say, somehow gets lost because there's so many things that people want and they want it all at once. I think the reconciliation package that failed to move Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema's. You know, hearts and minds that failed to sort of go over the finish line, I think is a good example, right? Even the left in Congress, our elected leaders, they had to put it all in the package, right? All on the table. And if it wasn't going to be everything at once right here in this multi-trillion dollar package, they weren't going to have it. I I fully supported the package. And I'm, you know, like a lot of us, (laughs) really kind of devastated that it kind of is going to signify the big failure of the of the first two years of Biden's administration to, to not pass that. But um, I, I agree that activism and the right, as you say, which is built much more on hierarchy, discipline, order, um, not exactly on January 6th, I wouldn't say. <laughs> um, so when you let the mob loose and you let real right-wing protesters go do their thing, mm. I'm not sure you're going to be so happy with the great sense of order. Um, on the contrary, and they bring guns and intends to use them, you know. Very different, the left and the right. But I agree fully. The left needs to get a new sense of what winning looks like. You want to win the climate battle, you want to win getting guns off the streets when when you know that the majority of Americans want that. We gotta figure out a way. Young people do, and working with legislators, working in local government, working with non with with the uh, all the sectors that you sort of need building alliances. So I feel equally sort of occupied disappointed so many people um by its sort of failure to structuralize or to come up with a plan and yet it was in its nature to do so it was a movement that wasn't here i don't think to actually come up with those ideas it was here to wake up the country which it did um and then it sort of mysteriously um vanished and left us this uh this wake that then created a groundswell of other things but uh yeah. and movements
1: Yeah, I did a whole monologue this week on breaking points about just how jealous I am watching the truckers protest because I'm like, whoa, shutting down trade with the U.S. and like crippling like the automakers and stuff. I mean, that was a very smart tactic. Um, The way that they have disrupted the streets. I'm sure it has been terrible for people who live in Ottawa, but they have certainly they have certainly gotten a response.
2: They got a response. They achieved that. But was it if, if the majorities of the people of people looking at them say, Really? You're gonna do that? I gotta go to the hospital. I gotta take my wife here. I need to and well, you're gonna-
1: when you look no, at the I, fact I- that they've had actual policy wins, I would say, yeah. I mean, what do they fact, want? The
2: vaccine passport? Is that what they want?
1: They've had three uh Canadian provinces which have rolled back.
0: Vaccine Their passports?
1: vaccine passports and pandemic restrictions. You have copycat movements inspired around
0: the world. They still have the mandates, though, right? Isn't... Uh,
1: it depends province to province. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, they've had actual tangible policy wins, which is more than you can say for um, the Black Lives Matter protests, which were, you know, the largest movement. They had
2: a lot. They, they reformed. They got cameras put on police. They got various. I mean, there, there at the were... federal
1: level, not only did we not defund the police, we're like, let's fund the police more. I mean, they haven't passed yeah, a single. That was piece. Biden's response. Was He's like, response. I
0: agree with these protesters, man. So I'm going to fund the cops. more. Right. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I mean, they haven't gotten a single piece of federal legislation passed. And it's even worse than it just being ultimately directionless and not as effective as it could have been because i grant you at the local level there were things that actually that did get through and there were individual candidates who who ultimately benefited but now the national black lives matter organization is being taken over by a bunch of clintonites um so it's yeah, less there's than, a
0: big scandal too about money being uh, yeah gone
1: totally yeah. and so mignon moore and the dnc's top lawyer are now taking over the leadership positions. So when you have the the vacuum and you're you don't have that the leadership and you don't have the goals, it's very easy for the people who, you know, are corporate aligned and do have particular goals and are happy to step into those roles to sort of co-opt it.
2: Yeah. I look, I think that the older generations that saw what happened earlier and have seen how the left has continually sort of um well, it's classic, right? It's the in it's the internal fire and the circular firing squad and the eating itself, uh, sort of, um, battering itself from within, you know, the, the great critic and, and activist and writer, Todd Gitlin, who just died several weeks ago and who many reports and, and, and podcasts and great obituaries have been written really celebrating his role as a left, leftist critic and scholar and activist and, and, and wonderful sort of quality writer. Um, he really, uh, you know, it was like the older 60s generation that already went through this were pulling their hair out, right, when Occupy was going through this structureless, don't, we don't need demands, we don't need um, a sense of a policy that we want passed, we don't think the system is even, it's all broken and corrupt and we're not going to make demands on a system that that we don't legitimize. Um, that infuriated. That just it just um, sort of depressed. I think a lot of older people who said, "No, don't go that route. Get serious. We hear you. We want to tax the rich. We want to rein in the banks." But uh, you know, I, I hear you guys. I think that the right. You're right. Focusing on something like mandate, liberty, freedom. Right. That's the name of this this um, protest in Ottawa. Is essentially freedom. I mean, when you boil things down to one word like that, that is easy for people to understand, no mandate, give us freedom. um, I think that they, they figured out something, you're right, that has had real success and impact. But whether long term that, yeah, it'll start a wave and we see it in Belgium and Holland and these other global places where the truckers, but it's not a popular it's
1: almost as it's almost more incredible because they are totally on the wrong side of Canadian public opinion. Like there's yeah, no it, doubt about it. I Paul mean, just they are out proving. That. Yeah. It's and like 70, 90% 30, of
2: truckers, 90% of truckers are vaccinated in Canada. So, right. Okay. Right. The well, teamsters the, came I mean, out and said, we're not with these people. Most, the most of the one people
1: involved here. aren't actually truckers. Let's, I mean, there's all kinds of, right. There's all kinds of mythology here, and I'm not trying to lionize them, um, but it is al- actually almost even more impressive That they've been able to score policy wins when they're on so dramatically on the wrong side of public opinion. Now, part of why is because what they're asking for—an end to mandates, an end to masking restrictions, vaccine passports, and whatever—it's no threat to the capitalist world. I mean, business has been calling for—they want reopenings, they want the worker bees back in the office. You know, they want the schools open so that their workers can come back. And by the way, I support some of those things. That doesn't mean it's the wrong policy, but the trucker's core demands are also no real threat to sort of like the entrenched systems of power that you all were directly going after, which makes it much more difficult to ultimately effectuate change.
2: And yet the irony, of course, and this is where I think um, we're really at this inflection point right now about what this movement, this auto movement, the January 6th movement, the whole Trump movement, in a sense, the white under listened to angry, marginalized, the white marginalized working class, uh, whatever you want to call them, the new populism on the right. And that's now being seen uh, in Ottawa. I mean, it's as though the virus, really the pandemic has really shaken up everything in our lives, right? Economically and politically and so much. It's also totally blurred these lines where, the people in Ottawa and the whole the right those are those are those are guys who aren't making you know if they miss a paycheck they're in trouble right these are folks living on the edge just like the folks that occupy Wall Street was sort of talking about these are working people who can't afford to have the system uh, you know sort of take one more thing away from them and yet it's it's blending this kind of uh, populism where you're right they're not talking about the banks right now but they're equally angry about corporate control and the banks and corruption and and big pharma and big whatever big oil well the truckers aren't worried about big oil because they rely on it but this idea of the blending i've seen it myself with activists with occupy people who are also many of them on the anti-vax line and are not they they are part of kind of this movement of don't tell me what to do i have my freedom and we've seen it uh the this blending of the right this curious unpredictable sort of unexpected fusion of left and right activism through the virus, through the lens of the virus, whether that'll expand and sort of grow into a new movement that really takes this genuine kind of 99% um, uh, working people party, maybe it'll eventually, you know, form into some climate movement since that's what's really impacting all of us. I don't know if the the, the right side can get on with on that, Bored with that, but um, I think that that's what we're seeing with this Ottawa protest. It's really hard to measure up. We're in the middle of it right now, but um, it's the right, high not hijacking, but sort of borrowing the techniques of left protest, or at least doing what you know Occupy did and what many movements mm-hmm. are doing, mm-hmm. and yet and yet coming at it from such a different perspective um, and blending these different people that don't fit neatly into a box. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. To your point, yes. There's definitely. And you see this on the left for sure, we've talked about it. There's there's not there is no like what's the true leftist position or true socialist position on lockdowns and vaccine mandates. It's like I know plenty of leftists and socialists who are pro lockdown i know plenty of leftists and socialists who are anti lockdown i know plenty of leftists and socialists who are pro vaccine mandate i know plenty who are anti vaccine mandate there's some like me who like the vaccinator test approach like so that's sort of all over the place but to your point the connecting tissue between you know right leaning uprisings and left leaning uprisings it really it's anger at elites it's just anger at our institutions it's the fact exactly. that like Nothing seems to work well anymore. Nobody seems to have any hope anymore that the, we could have a brighter future. And um, I will say, though, and this might make me an asshole, but I am significantly less sympathetic to Canadians because they have fucking health care. <laughs> and I covered a story. I covered a story on my show maybe Like eight years ago or something. I don't remember if it was just a ranking of economic mobility or as they called it, social mobility. So the ability for one generation to do climb higher up that economic ladder than the other. But either Canada was like number one in the world in what what used to be considered the American dream, or there was like a direct comparison between Canada and the US and Canada blew the US out of the water on the issue of the American dream. So uh, I'm I'm a lot less sympathetic to them. I'm a lot more sympathetic to Americans.
2: So. <laughs> oh, good point. Yeah, I think they were along with Denmark. They're considered like the most comfortable, right. basically, well, most well-structured, organized, <laughs> desirable society. Right? Like like a Nordic. Sort of. That's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I hate to admit this. I'm sorry that these words are about to exit my mouth, but David Frum actually made a good point. He's a get, David- get off our show, <laughs> But he was talking about how their middle, they, you know, they're experiencing the same widening of inequality trends that every country in the world is. But their middle fifth has remained much stronger and much solid, more solid than certainly ours has, but also other countries as well. Um, which is part of why you still have, you know, relatively high levels of trust in government. The numbers there versus what they are here with regards to sort of trust in the government on the pandemic and um, willingness to. Trudeau is taking extraordinary measures right now in terms of invoking the Emergencies yeah, Act, I, something, I that, on this something that no prime minister has ever done before, um, ordering banks to. Freeze people's yeah. bank accounts and totally like push them out of the financial system altogether if they either materially support the protest or attend a protest. These, I have to think, I have to hope that Americans would be uncomfortable with the federal government seizing. We weren't. Look at the Patriot Act. This level Act. of of power.
0: Patriot Act was the same oh, shit. That's
1: it. That's the thing. I mean, it's it's. Um, Anyway, so I but I do think that Canadians have a greater level of sort of trust in their government, and perhaps for good reasons.
2: True, absolutely. But I think what you hit on already, uh, saying the elites, it, it really is. It's about that, and whether the right has a problem with science, with with believing basic facts and, and truths the way in the media. I mean, the right has a major, major kind of hole in its intellect, in the sense that this populist right really basically doesn't believe actual what's true and what's not. Does the virus kill you? Does it not? Can you lo- use what Trump says You know, injected in your veins or can't you? Trusting, I mean, anti-science in terms of climate change, in terms of the pandemic, in terms of anything. So we have a major divide, but I think like what you said is absolutely true. I think if a populist leader, frankly, or if populism on the right organizes itself intelligently and actually tones down a bit of the crazy and a bit of the denial of truth and facts, and simply addresses the issues of wealth disparity and inequality and injustice from a pretty nuts and bolts, say it like it is, kind of like Bernie Sanders, kind of like he did, no holds barred, taking off the the kid gloves and just say it like it is. But uh, does it from the from a, from a more rightward perspective, uh, talking to the working people. I think that's probably. Speaking of you know, what has the best chance to break through and create a mass populist movement? If it tones down a bit of the of of the madness, that 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 can do it. Because I don't think, yeah, the right is not going to listen to lefty um, sort of uh, anything like you say. All your socialist friends that you speak of, of which yeah. Although have- I
1: mean, Bernie in twenty sixteen did a pretty good job. You know, I he mean, did? he had a significant uh, level of support among the white working class. I'm I'd be curious why you think that is. And also, I'd love to know a little bit more from your perspective of how the Bernie 2016 campaign sort of grows directly out of Occupy because I know that's something you you write about in the book.
2: It's a major point. I really I feel like that's maybe the most relevant um aspect. People wondered why why focus on Occupy, right? It kind of is totally out of our memory. It was a decade ago, September of 2011. Literally, we passed the 10-year mark just just this fall there's real reasons to focus on what the significance of Occupy despite its failures, despite its almost immediate disappearance um, from the scene, what it left in its wake was profound. And one thing that I found in my research and interviewing many people was just the way that it utterly reshaped and reformed the Democratic Party. We did not, there was not this this radically, not even radical, just simply, very forthright speaking to the issues of working people, there wasn't a progressive wing that had muscle in the Democratic Party. It was fringe people. It was people like Bernie uh, who were shouting into the wilderness, you know, decades ago, or people like Paul Wellstone or... um, Russ Feingold. uh, Russ Feingold or or the Ohio... um, Anthony Weiner. (laughs) Uh Anyway, it was a handful of were never taken seriously I wouldn't lump Wiener into that mixed metaphor but lump him into that group but uh necessarily Bernie came along and what Occupy had done was awoken this sense of the vocabulary like we say mm. like you had said earlier the 99% you couldn't get a better winning slogan and soundbite than we are the 99% that was it that was at the core of Occupy's message inequality we have rights we demand change um, the majority, and Bernie took that that new that change in the American consciousness, where people were now ready to hear the argument of wealth inequality and corporate corruption of Washington. It had never been spoken like that before, but Bernie had been saying that for decades, but no one had listened to him. He was a socialist from Vermont. Um, and all of a sudden, what he did in 2014, 2015 with his campaign, Elizabeth Warren, of course, kind of led the way by winning her election in 2012. And Obama capitalizing on the Occupy theme with his re election in 2012, beating Mitt Romney on his 47% line and sort of casting them as, you know, casting it as a, basically a re election on a sense of inequality and tackling inequality, which, of course, he did very little to do. Um, But Elizabeth Warren comes into the Senate, she flirts with running for the presidency, and the story I tell in the book is really this band of Occupy Wall Street veterans who were really good on the technology and knew how to make a meme go viral, and they knew that Bernie, if that message could get out there to the public, it would catch fire, and it did. And they helped him enormously. They created people for Bernie, the Facebook, you know, hundreds and hundreds of groups across the country that made it easy for people to plug in and join and get catalyzed, get motivated by this populist message that no one had heard a major mainstream, you know, presidential candidate say in in, in decades, you know, practically going back to Adelaide Stevenson or something. I mean, something you don't hear. Um at that level of the platform. And people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez heard it. And that's what made her jump into politics. She was in Bernie's office in the Bronx working as a volunteer on his campaign. And she decided after her trip to Standing Rock um, to go be with the, you know, the, the, the Sioux reservation protesters on the pipeline. She said, I'm gonna run for office. And she they transformed what the Democratic Party has become. Now it is a party that is putting a reconciliation package passing it or not, into an office that's based on the principles, essentially, that occupy raise, the $15 wage, the health care for all, student debt, climate. Um, so I think that we see, and, and like the Green New Deal that AOC proposed, all of that is this radicalization and normalization of what was formerly fringe left ideas injected into the mainstream of one of America's two, well, really the only sane american political party at this point
0: so so on the one hand that's an inspiring story but then on the other hand i find it sort of a soul-crushing story because it's uh it's just it shows how simple and straightforward the solutions are the the message is that could win and usher in real change but the real barrier let's be honest to any of these things actually happening is the complete and total corporate capture of the democratic party i mean poll just came out yesterday biden's approval rating on the economy is Thirty-three percent. You know, there were some polls that had his approval rating under 40% that came out within the last month. And so, you know, Democrats have a majority. They have the House. They have the Senate. He has the presidency. He's got that executive order pen he could break out at any moment to eliminate student debt if he wants to. He just doesn't want to. He can legalize marijuana if he wants to. He just doesn't want to. There's a number of things he could do. He's not doing it. To your point about, like, yeah, Green New Deal, it's now in the conversation. Some of these ideas like Medicare for All, they're now in the conversation But they run 100 miles an hour into a brick wall. Why? Because Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and, you know, Biden and the old guard of the Democratic Party and the Blue Dogs, you know, the mansions and the cinemas and the Warners. Like these people represent uh, the exact opposite of that spirit of um, Occupy Wall Street. So what do you view? I mean, I have things that I think are the answers and the solutions as to how you circumnavigate um, the corrupt corporate obstructionists, but I'm curious what you think is the solution to actually not just get moral victories, but get real policy victories.
2: I think that's the million dollar, look, that's it. That's the only question that the progressives are asking at this point, and and anyone who wants to see these initiatives. That's kind of how I end my book, in fact, because I had to finish the afterword in March or April of 2021 after the insurrection and and when it was Biden had just passed his big stimulus. And it looked as though the momentum was leaning toward, you know, barring the last minute uh, road blockade or brick wall put up by Manchin and Cinema. It looked as though this this massive sort of FDR style or LBJ style overhaul uh, was really I certainly wrote Generation Occupy in a more hopeful voice and sense than I feel at this moment, because uh, it really did. After the election and Biden and the Democratic control, it seemed as though we actually were quite close. And I think it just shows over and over again in history that uh, intentions and and motivate and movements and um, goals. To get it across the finish line is just another, certainly in our age, it's just, uh, it's different than, yes, uttering uh, ideas and hopes, putting these things into practice uh, and into policy is just this immense kind of mountain to climb. And I'm not sure with a few, all it takes is a few obstructionists, whether it's the entire Republican Party that won't even have it, even though they want tons of these things, even though Manchin's white, poor, working class wants childcare, wants... (laughs) <laughs> to get out of debt, wants student debt, uh, wants a $15 wage, or at least, you know, should want it. Um, we, we don't seem to be able to do it. And I'm not sure uh, without a mass, even more mass populist movement behind demanding these things. You know what disappoints me about this whole last year and a half is the la- is that activism, I think the virus had a big part in it. Aside from Black Lives Matter, which was in the middle, that was May 2020, two months after the shutdown of the nation. Where are people demanding? Why, why do activists come out when they're angry about something? When Trump gets elected and the pussy hats come out and the women's march happens and the immigration, people support immigration, people do pro-science marches, you name it, because they're against the Trump and the, and the, and the Republicans who want to get rid of our health care. They come out and they torpedo the, the effort to abolish health care. Great. They did amazing things to keep back the Trump wave and the effort to, to dismantle as much as the right could um, the sort of security and, and and health and climate. But then where are people, when the Democrats get into power, where are they getting out surrounding Washington doing what the Ottawa guys are doing, but in a different way, the way that we surrounded the White House back in you know, the fall of 2011 and forced Obama to veto the Keystone XL pipeline, where are people pushing for the progressive change that we have been lobbying for and demanding now for a decade. And yet when they're in power, we somehow, the organizing or the intensity or the efforts sort of diminish and, and people sit back like we did with Obama and kind of wait and see if our elected leaders are going to do something. And I agree with you, it, it, it's, uh, it's really disappointing. All it would take would be some really innovative, energetic new leadership or, or just a new message Um, to spark people but it's just not happened yet and we're waiting and it looks like there's just failure in Washington.
1: I think there's another big problem for the left right now that I'm very curious your thoughts on which is that um, most of the the left energy that I see and granted this isn't a lot of online spaces, not real life spaces but online spaces, is about more subtraction than addition. And we can all remember back to 2016 when Bernie ran on a universalist message The framing was, you know, more or less the Occupy framing, 99 versus the 1%. And he was basically smeared as a racist for even trying to appeal to, you know, white working class voters who shared some of the frustrations over trade and outsourcing and economic rigging.
0: What was Hillary's famous line? What? If you break up the big banks, is that going to eliminate racism or something like that? Oh, yes. You break up the big banks. Yeah. Is that going to eliminate racism? And so Got him.
1: <laughs> you know, there's there's all this um effort now to to basically identify who you're allowed to who you're allowed to care about, who you're allowed to work with, <laughs> who, you know, who you're allowed to have in the coalition. And I think that's a big I think it's a huge barrier to having the kind of, you know, cross cross-race, cross-class solidarity that is absolutely essential to any sort of left populist movement actually being effective.
2: I agree. And I think what you're skirting around and kind of dancing around language-wise is the culture, is the the culture wars and the identity politics and the cancel culture and you name it. Yeah, look, I I can't speak enough. I I teach journalism now at, at a community college. I'm in the academic world um i see and 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 am kind of part of that not to mention as a journalist and in the media um i think that the left you know the deeper it goes and, and 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 again this isn't new right it started in the 60s it started with 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 let's not focus on real bread and butter economic issues that impact everyone let's divide let's focus on the people this group and let's focus on and it's all legitimate of course let's you know Latino, Latin American people, Native American people, African American people, women, of course, and then, you know, and gay movements, all these movements that created the modern left, this alliance, this mass alliance. Mm -hmm. But who did that leave out? And who does it continue to leave out? Is your, you know, in the 40s to 50% of the population of the country, which is white people and many of them working class people who are also deeply. In debt, deeply struggling, deeply angry, hated, as you said, watching the bank bailouts and what Obama did and how Washington capitulated. I mean,
1: well, let's be clear a lot of working-class people of all races feel left out yeah. by that politics. I, mean, I was going to say I reject
0: the framing because when you look at polling on, on these issues that we're talking about, remember there was a poll that came out on defund the police. 18% of the country supports it. The overwhelming majority of black voters are against it. Um, there was the famous Latinx poll where it's like literally 3% of Latinos right. or something. You accept be that called framing. Latinx. I want to talk about <laughs> yeah. that. But that's not a, even like there were even polls. I'm blanking on the specifics but generally this idea of like do you think people are too easily offended? And the overall. Majority people are like, Yeah, people are too easily offended, and that includes people of all races and backgrounds. So it's almost like a very insular little clique of academic elites with an outsize, um, you know, a louder voice in the media that get to drive this ship and steer this ship, and then everybody follows suit. It's like the thing that just happened with Joe Rogan, where they try to isolate the times where he said the n-word in context talking about the word not using the word against anybody that becomes the portrait of all of joe rogan his entire career and then all the stuff like you showed on your show of like here he is endorsing bernie sanders here he is endorsing universal health care here he is you know whatever fill in the blank saying he thinks michelle obama would make a great president here like all those things don't count don't matter we've now determined this is who he is and i think that it's just this It's misleading on purpose, and it is, like you said, the main point is it's about subtraction and not addition. It's about, look, we don't want a certain kind of person amongst us. The left used to be about purity of policy. Now, at least in strands online, it's about purity of character. And I got bad news for you. If you want to create a movement around purity of character,
2: we're all fucked.
0: Because <laughs> none of us is going to not qualify. a single one of us is going to get through a purity test on character. Are you right. kidding me? And even
2: Bernie, and even Bernie, who, as you say, had such a—I mean—he's unbendable over decades and decades of his support on the issues, right? Unbendable, and yet he got nailed on, really kind of yeah, on on race that he wasn't enough speaking to to the black population or that he wasn't attentive to everyone. And he tries to be utterly speaking to everyone and pluralistic. He got arrested
0: really- protesting segregation.
2: Right, like, right. is
0: that not the debate ender? No, he was he was he for was, gay
1: marriage long before Hillary. Was. Are, <laughs> in the
0: 1990s, there's video him on the floor of Congress because I think he was in Congress at the time. He wasn't in the Senate yet, but yeah. he's argu- He got mad at somebody for I think saying homos in the military or something. He was like, "That's di- that's disrespectful language." <laughs> in the 1990s, the guy was arguing for gay marriage. Gay marriage before like gay people were arguing for gay marriage. <laughs>
2: But try showing up at a rally, try showing up at a protest or going to a, a meeting of activists or not or organizers. Try doing that and actually saying what you're saying and, and, and saying, you know what, let's not focus on identity politics. Let's drop all that. I mean, that's why it's the taboo subject. That's why I'm not quite sure how the left deals with it, which is why I said that if somebody tones down the rhetoric from the right, and actually speaks to these issues but doesn't fool with all that doesn't get distracted yeah they have yeah. a better chance of actually building a, a mass movement because i think a lot of people on the left and center left maybe not the hardline activists on the left who just really want every language and every bit of you know your rhetoric to sort of fall in place and it has to make everyone sort of horizontal um that's not where most people are and but if the right. left can't get that in its head i don't know how you organize because like you said you don't go very far when you're it's about character. We all have flaws. We all say things, and, and we can't be pure, but the left sort of demands it.
0: And let me just say real quick, the right will never deliver, even if there is somebody who walks that line and makes the argument and goes full economic populist but doesn't touch the identity stuff. When they're actually in office, they'll do exactly what Trump did, Yeah. which is like, yeah, sure, Protect. I said all these populist things, but pfft, here's another tax cut for the rich.
1: Yeah, no, that is, that is very true. No, I mean, the reason why I've been thinking about this a lot recently, um, there was, I don't know if you saw, there's a new um, union organizing effort at REI in New York City. And REI is not only a company that brands itself as progressive, it's also organized as a co-op. So seemingly has, you know, in its DNA, a commitment to workplace democracy. But of course, they are engaging in the very same union busting tactics that every other company does. And they actually did this podcast, where at the beginning of it, the The woman who's hosting the podcast is their um, like Chief Diversity Officer. And she introduces herself. She gives her pronouns. she does an indigenous land call out, and then proceeds to introduce their CEO who does the same thing, and then launches into the union busting, <laughs> the same like right wing totally standard issue, union busting propaganda. I guess the one thing that I do find hopeful, certainly I find that the labor movement really hopeful, you know, in terms of the possibility for the type of solidarity that is essential to have the, the wins and the victories for all people that we all would like to see. And I also think that, um, there are a lot of young people who see through this really hollow weaponization of identity politics to basically cover a completely corporate agenda. So you get to cloak yourself in the, this virtuous language while union busting being the, you know, the perfect example. Starbucks is doing the exact same thing. And it does seem like there, there are a lot of people who are kind of seeing through that right now and seeing when the cia is yeah sending out their like mention. diversity videos or whatever yeah. to say hold on a second you know this is you're not persuading us that you're what, you're the good guys now with all of this they
0: have mental health issues they use that in, like the cia recruitment ad Yeah, I'm a Latinx, blah blah blah, and I have mental health issues, and it's like that doesn't, you know, you can still still be the drone pilot. It's okay. Come on, (laughs) come press the red button. It's cool with us.
1: So that gives me a little bit of hope that I feel like there is some awareness of how cynically this um, has been used to try to persuade people who are progressive and well intentioned and want to see everybody thrive. There's starting to be a little bit of awareness of the way that this has been weaponized against movement building for real structural economic change.
2: But to come out and say it openly and, and clearly hasn't, I, I feel like a lot of young people, I, I feel like they get wrapped up in this almost helplessly so because they feel these things they don't want to see people say racist things or homophobic or whatever yeah and then they're forgetting the big economic issue they're forgetting that wait a sec why are we getting distracted by this anger when we can be going on the you know actually working on issues of why my wage isn't enough to pay for my rent and and let me live and have health care i wanted to say though on the on the workers idea that's another point i focus on in the book i think that the way that occupy reawakened the sense of Demands that workers can make for themselves. Nobody is lobbying or supporting or elevating the needs and the and the de- desires of working people to live dignified lives. Very few politicians were, which is why when Occupy sort of rang that bell of the 99%. What we saw in the decade after Occupy was this really, I don't know what you would you call it, a flowering or a flourishing of or a rediscovery of working people's power from the fight for 15 that took off the year after occupy to the walmart worker strikes which basically shuttered on black friday you know shuttered walmart's thousands of stores across the country and around the world um really kind of occupy inspired and the idea that uh and then the teacher strikes that took Mm -hmm. off in red states the red state revolt right white working people again demanding higher wages and they won them and they got them in state after state (laughs) kentucky oklahoma West Virginia, uh, across the country, really, over to Arizona, and I think it shows moving us to the Great Resignation that we are in today, where people have just had enough, and it's not worth it anymore to go to work, work for some company that you know is just padding its pockets in profits while you're making basically barely living wage. Um, I think that that trend, that's to me, is the hopeful one because it shows that we've our consciousness as a work uh, as the need to to milit- militantly demand um, better conditions, better rights, better wages is really now kind of a mainstream thing. It, it's not a fringe. Oh, you radical sort of anarcho-socialist, you know, workers um, who are asking these things. It's regular people who are leaving McDonald's, who are leaving all the fat, you know basic low-wage jobs uh, because it's not worth it anymore. And I think that that precipitates something that we haven't yet come to, but we're seeing evolve in terms of worker organizing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's really strange is that I remember in the wake of the um, Great Recession, subprime mortgage crisis, Great Recession, giant downturn, Occupy Wall Street. I remember that at the time there was much made of the fact that you saw an increase in all types of radicalization. So, yes, you had more people attracted to 99 percent versus one percent Bernie Sanders type politics, social democratic politics, socialist politics. There's an increase in interest in that. But at the same time, there's also an increase in, you know, hardcore libertarian ayn rand style beliefs in fact uh, I, some of ayn rand's books were some of the best sellers during that downturn mm. but what happened over time and again this is i find this fascinating i guess more people than not discovered like that's actually that's not the answer that if anything that was part of the problem when you repealed glass steagall and got rid of the basic regulation which led to you know the downturn and the crash and so now to your point yeah you see now people of all sorts of you know political persuasions and backgrounds moving more towards a a pro-union type of politics. I mean, we're seeing in many ways the rebirth of the union movement in the U.S. They've been playing defense for decades and decades, and now finally unions are starting to play some offense. And granted, the numbers are still low overall with who's unionized, but at least the power in those unions currently they're deciding we're not taking it anymore whether it's the John Deere strike or Starbucks union starting and whatnot so uh, I I don't know what exactly led to that change that at some point along the line people realize this you know anarcho-libertarian approach is not the right answer but it certainly feels like today that um, it it is different and you do have more of a consensus around we got we need regulation we need workplace safety we need uh, labor unions, and and the answer is not like a government hands-off approach.
2: Absolutely, I I think fault me for it if if you want to, but I mean my point and my argument in the book is that before Occupy, whether you want to say it was Occupy that did this, before Occupy, no one was making a peep, right? Labor union support, right? 9% in the country or something. I mean, the numbers are just staggeringly, were low and labor had been crushed. Ronald Reagan crushed them, starting with the air traffic controller strike that he, you know, fired 11,000 workers, just like that, 1981. That set the tone for the whole neoliberal jobs shipped overseas, cost-cutting, Lining profit, you know, uh, pockets of, of, of CEOs and sending to the tax havens and the Caymans and all the rest at the expense of workers and cutting pensions and all the healthcare and benefits that workers saw gradually just degrade. I think that no one was sort of had the temerity before Occupy, and it was a fascinating moment because the labor leaders in New York City that I remember going to these meetings and seeing them, they were on the sidelines waiting and watching. They didn't Mm -hmm. want to necessarily be associated with something as radical as Occupy Wall Street because they're these establishment guys who go and lobby and work with Democratic party leaders. But when they came and they leaned in and they came out, 30,000 people protested a few weeks into the Occupy movement in New York City and labor came out in force and it was a revelation because it showed that the message of the 99% they had heard it and they had gotten on board. Not all of them, not all workers think thought it was great, but um, it 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 marked a turning. And I think that that is a moment we can look back at as this birth of this new feeling of a radic- of of a a militancy and a, a radicalization of the labor movement, and maybe as you say, like a rebirth of it, a renaissance where they're ready to organize in different ways. I think what we've seen in this past decade is a kind of a systematic building on that power up to even this moment um, right now. And and as the corporate, as the Bezoses and the Musks and Zuckerbergs, as that's become the more and more rarefied number of a few centibillionaires, as they're all called, these guys with $100 billion or more, um, You know, I think it becomes clearer to everyone that unless we get together and demand and get angry, um, They're just going to, it'll become (laughs) even more stratified until we say enough.
1: Yeah, we're in a real in-between time because on the one hand, the sort of establishment forces feel stronger than ever. You've got Joe Biden, you know, neoliberal through and through, in charge in the White House. Kamala Harris, second in command, who's, you know, exactly the same. Obviously, they crushed Bernie twice very effectively, um, the people who, you know, in the squad who went to Congress, they've done some good things, but they haven't stood up to, to Pelosi and the Democratic establishment enough to sort of force any kind of a change and a reckoning within the party. And on the other hand, you do have this sense that this can't possibly hold, and that creates opportunity, also creates real danger, as you're pointing out with, yeah, I mean, whether it's Trump himself again or someone who's even worse and slightly more capable um, than he is.
2: Yeah, name your Republican up and coming. Yeah, your Tom right. Potter.
1: Who could you know, marshal very cynically use the language of the working class while you know marshaling all of the the corporate forces that that are truly behind them. So it's it's a there's an opening, but it's it's just very unclear whether it ultimately goes in a, a positive, fruitful direction that would change things truly for the better for working class people, or whether it continues to devolve in this sort of like authoritarian police state direction that frankly has been continued by yes, Donald Trump, but also, you know, the, the Democrats as they've held office as well.
2: Absolutely. And I think going back to what you said, Kyle, at the start, the idea of discipline and what happens when a bunch of ex cops and Marines go lead a protest movement. Well, you have ostensibly you have order and structure though we didn't on January 6th. But, um, what I think the left really, I think in terms of its movements and its people power, in the streets building these movements i mean black lives matter that was not a joke 20 to 25 million americans coming out biggest protests in american history um for to to even to standing rock and the women's march and one after another the climate strikes millions of young people but i think that this idea of discipline is so key and it's another thing along with identity politics and not getting sidetracked on who's pure and who's saying using the rhetoric that's accepted i think that this idea of a movement and of people able to discipline and and organize themselves into some level of hierarchical or at least um, some rules based on where people can't, like Black Lives Matter, a fringe minority of people kind of, you know, start fires, disrupt, burn things, create havoc that essentially distracts from the great message that 98 or 9% of the people were saying, and basically the country, including Donald Trump in an election year, basically gets to focus on, look at those guys in Portland and Seattle who are burning your cities down and they're coming for you next. So what when is the left going to sort of restrain its more um, chaotic and, and, and combustible elements um, to really, I think that that's key because popular opinion, popular persuasion, you got to get the public behind you. And um, once people sort of see that anarchy is loose in the streets and it's wild and threatening, so much for your 99% who were there. And this is the story, the age-old story uh, of the left. I think it needs to tackle that issue, how to discipline itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, again, critics would say, well, it, look, it's about what concessions are just concessions that you shouldn't be making to the right, but you are for optics' sake alone. You know, that would be a criticism of what we're saying. But then, you know, the flip side of it is what concessions are actually just common sense concessions that would help the left get their act together more so that we genuinely could win. That's the debate. you go, got to try to walk that line in the most effective way, most reasonable way possible. And the debate will still be ongoing as to where that line is.
1: Yeah. And ultimately, you know, in my view, the biggest disappointment of those protests is how much they were ultimately co-opted by sort of corporate forces who felt like, Oh, Hey, I'm Amazon and I can put a black lives matter banner on my homepage. Or, you know, I was reading how Uggs sponsored like some racial justice, electric slide thing, like Jamie diamond kneeling in front of a bank vault Um,
0: the Kente cloth. Yeah. yeah. the Nancy
1: Pelosi kneeling in Kente cloth. You know, it, it collapsed down and was co-opted from something that was truly radical and did truly have a structural analysis to something that was really hollow theatrical and surface level, um, you know, really hiding some more nefarious forces. So anyway, um, the book is really, Interesting. It was very thought-provoking for me to think back about Occupy, what it meant then, what impact it's continued to have. I do think your point about the way that it raised a class consciousness, that it framed politics in a, in a way that was really significant, really effective, and that in some ways I think the left has lost since then— is is a really good one the book is called generation occupy reawakening american democracy i recommend it to all of you guys and michael thank you so much for spending some time with us today trying to think through all of these issues
2: thank you so much that's been an engaging conversation you guys are fun
0: okay that was michael levitin he wrote a great book on occupy wall street um you know when i made that criticism of like here's what i think the shortfalls are on the left yeah i'm surprised he agreed I'm happy he agreed. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel crazy, even though I think the solutions I'm advocating for are the most obvious things in the world. <laughs> but nobody else says it. I'm the only one who says it.
1: Yeah. He talks about it. Some- he does talk about that some in the book that he frames it. The book ha- is framed very positively. hmm and he even said in speaking to us that he feels somewhat less positive now <laughs> than he did when he After was Build writing Back it. Better failed, yeah. Because he mm-hmm. was writing at a time, you know, it was probably when, I don't know exactly what months he was writing, but, you know, when I when we were talking to Bernie about, like, here's all the pieces that are in it, and wouldn't this be great if there's affordable childcare and free community college, and, you know, maybe the PRO Act is going to make it through, and you had this idea of, like, Okay, we don't expect we're gonna get all of this, but maybe we're actually gonna get some good things out of this. And that would represent, because Bernie did spearhead the initial drafting of what was in there. Mm that would represent an improvement over what we got in it, the Obama era.
0: It would have been the biggest transformation of the economy since the the New Deal.
1: Yeah, so that was that was a real thing. It wasn't what all, everything that we wanted. It didn't have Medicare for all. There were a million things that were wrong with it. But it was significant and it was different than what the Democratic Party has been doing our entire lives. So when you write the, that book at that moment, it feels very different than when you're now looking at it, you're like— Build Back Better is dead. The Democrats are about to get wiped out in the midterms. Trump is probably coming back in 2024. So it's hard from this moment to look back and say, you know, huge wins for the left and we're just continuing to build from
0: there. Okay, uh, this is a side point that I'm going to make here, but I feel compelled to make it so you're, you know talking about the process of reconciliation and build back better and you got to put all the things in that one piece of legislation Mm. now you and i know why they had to do that because regular order they need 60 votes to get anything through you just can't get it so they have to do it all through like one crack of reconciliation put everything in it at once but whenever i have conversations with normies who are not political junkies they're like i don't understand why are you putting 900 things in one bill yeah you know and so it's like to not get rid of the filibuster or to not give yourself infinite cracks at reconciliation so that you can do like Do one thing at a time. Okay. Manchin says he's for universal pre-K. Do just a vote on universal pre-K.
1: And get
0: 51 votes to win. Like that.
1: You know, maybe you could put two things. No, I don't like it. Universal pre-K and affordable childcare.
0: Nope, I don't like it. Just do one thing. Make them vote up or down on one thing with a 51 vote thing to win. And And then you know know for sure who's on your side, who's not on your side. It's not even a question.
1: And after Build Back Better failed. Bernie was pushing in the direction I and mean, it seemed like this was a possibility of doing, okay, fine, then we're going to do these up or down votes Biden and at least, get against people, it. Against it. at least get people on the record. Well, I think what has happened is, and I honestly, I don't even follow the ins and outs of this as closely anymore because it all seems like completely fruitless. It is. But yeah. Mansion has- like, you know, sort of shown enough ankle to to make them think like, oh, maybe we can still get something through the reconciliation process when obviously none of it is ultimately going to happen. But, you know, this assumption that it had to be done all million things into one bill, I don't even think that's true because remember there was a ruling from the parliamentarian saying that you could do multiple reconciliations more so than what they had initially thought. Now, I, I understand the reconciliation process is cumbersome and it's onerous and it takes some time to get through. You could change but
0: all of that. Well, that's, they have the ability to change all of that with 51 votes. Right. That's so, the dirty little secret. You could change it and you could change it with just 51 votes.
1: It feels like do. Democrats, once again, like they created this own their own little yes, page of yes. like, well, we only can pass it through this one very specific the process, oh, the insane process is so way. True.
0: We could change the process really easily, but the the process is so tough, and we're against changing that process.
1: Right. And then the other thing that happened is because it was all lumped together, then the whole discourse about it in the media became about the price tag rather than about the specific policies. The media always would have have found a way
0: to go after it. But if you do it like I suggested, like Bernie suggested, right, if you do it like I suggested, like Bernie suggested, but you either do it through abolishing the filibuster and needing 51 votes to get it through or just doing more cracks of reconciliation, then it's really hard to spin it if it's just a vote on universal pre-K.
1: Yeah, well, and here's the other thing is. At the beginning of the administration, there was a lot of political pressure to get the checks passed and some basic relief through because the economy was still really going through it. I mean, we're still going through it in certain ways, but the economy is really still going through it there at the beginning, and they needed to pass a relief bill. They could have put a few longer term permanent programs in there i mean at the very least they could have made the child tax credit permanent instead of for one year which was like the worst of all possible worlds that was another direction the other thing that was a total tactical screw-up was of course separating out the infrastructure piece and the build back better piece so like if we're gonna do the big giant stupid bill nobody understands at least put all the pieces together including the pieces that the corporatists want to try to keep them in the the strategy they pursued was literally the worst possible strategy in order to try to get this thing yep. done. And then, you know, they act like they're so impotent and there's nothing that they can do. And the thing that we always try to point out is like, even if you were to accept their framing that you have to follow the parliament and you can't get rid of the filibuster you have to do it through reconciliation, all these things, you still look at it and go, you could do executive orders on student loan debt, on on marijuana, on health care. There are a lot of things that you could personally do that you don't need Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema or the Republicans or the parliamentarian in order to get done. But they don't want to do it.
0: Well, that's why it always comes back to the same question. Is it impotence on purpose? Like, is that the point? Yeah. Like, I really think originally Joe Biden he didn't want that whole Bernie bill, that $3.5 trillion. So he liked the fact that there was a Kirsten Sinema and a Joe Manchin who would be like, I don't like a lot of these things. Let's change it. And Biden would be like, oh, you twisted my arm. Yeah, let's take out like half of it because he wanted like half of it out. What he didn't bank on is Cinnamon and Manchin saying, I actually don't want any of it. I just want the traditional infrastructure bill because it's filled with, filled with corporate pork. Yeah. That's the only thing I want. Then Manchin, uh, Then Biden was like, oh, shoot. That was a little too much. I didn't want all that. But, yeah, the things he could do through executive order, he just doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to eliminate student loan debt. He doesn't want to legalize marijuana. He doesn't want to free the nonviolent drug offenders. You go through it, he doesn't want to do it. If he wanted to do it, he would do it. He doesn't want to do it, which is like, fuck him. I'm not saying that to defend him. I'm saying that to go after him and say, you're terrible, you're going to lose, you know, and you earned it. Like, what do you expect? What do you expect?
1: The irony is that these people don't have principles or care about anything other than winning, like electoral winning. And even that, they only care about winning insofar as it doesn't, like, upset the donor class. So, yeah, within the
0: narrowest confines, we care right, about winning. Right. Like, we have to win, but also not piss off Pfizer or not piss off Goldman Sachs. Right. And it's like, well, then you're not going to win! Right. <laughs> you're and,
1: not going to win! They, I mean, they don't have a principle. Like, they don't have a guiding mission or plan or things that they are really committed to that they're going to try to get done. So, like, you know, at the beginning of Build Back Better... When you've got the the list of policies that are, are cooked up by Bernie, who was the only person who at the beginning of this administration, like, had a fucking clue about what he actually wanted right. to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So Bernie mm-hmm. comes in with, OK, here's what we're going to do. And Biden never... There was never any indication of what his priorities were, what he cared about, what was like a red line for him, what was like, I absolutely must get free community college or whatever into the bill. You would hear these whispers around Washington like, oh, he actually really likes free community college. And then it'd be stripped out the next week. So it, he didn't actually care about any of these individual programs. He cared about getting some kind of a bipartisan win which he got through his infrastructure thing, and you can see how magical that has been for him in the polls and what (laughs) an amazing difference (laughs) it's made for everybody in the country. Nobody cares about that thing. And it was woefully inadequate. And then when it came to Build Back Better, there was nothing that he was going to go to the math for because he doesn't care about any of this. All he cares about is like his positioning and how does this look for my legacy and what does it mean for the next election? And only again within the confines of what does it mean for the next election as long as I'm not pissing off like these people who give money to the Democratic Party. So it's sad.
0: Very sad. All right, let's wrap it up on that horrendous note. Okay. Uh, <laughs> love you guys. Go subscribe on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video of the show and it gets it to you a day early. You could sign up for free on Substack and get the podcast version free, the audio version a day later. So we love you guys. Thank you to everybody who is a uh, part of our Substack. You mean yeah. the world to us. We love you and we'll talk to you soon.
1: See y'all next week.